I don't know if anybody was bothered by that last hymn. You find yourself feeling like, hey, what am I doing singing about God or Jesus smiting in holy vengeance all his foes beneath his throne? We don't sing that stuff very often, do we? Um, if we sang the Psalms more, we'd sing that stuff all the time. Um, it's very reminiscent of Psalm 2, where um, you know, it talks about the Lord scoffing while all the kings of the earth take their stand against him. And at the very end of the psalm, the psalmist advises the kings to kiss the son, lest he be angry. The holy vengeance of God is, is part of what's revealed as true in the Bible. And I think, you know, even when, it, when we were singing that song, it's like, this, is, this stuff is not always pleasant. This stuff is not always the kind of things that we would invent if we could invent a God. And, of course, we invent gods all the time, and we usually leave this kind of stuff out. Or maybe we're a really angry person and we're just mad at everybody around us, and so we love this stuff because we don't think it's going to happen to us, but it's going to happen to all these other people that we don't like. But regardless, we, all of us are tempted to make a god in our own image, and that's really why we so desperately need to come and sit under the Scriptures and have God speak to us again about who Jesus really is. And, you know, we can, we can look at this from a scholarly perspective. We can look at it, uh, I was thinking even as we were singing, I was, I was thinking about, um, well, I was thinking about Ricky Bobby and um, Talladega Nights. Because I imagine almost everybody here has seen that movie, right? If you haven't seen that movie, it's worth watching that movie just for the scene where Ricky Bobby says grace to the little baby Jesus. And, and you know, you guys went right, and he's talking about, you know, little eight-pound, two-ounce little baby Jesus, you know, and, you know, his, his wife is reminding him, well, you know, he did grow up. Ah, but I really like the little eight-pound, two-ounce, little baby Jesus, and, you know, to the point of ridiculousness. And yet we do the same thing all the time. I thought, what a perceptive, what a perceptive um, insight here in this movie about the way so many people that name the name of Jesus don't really want the full revelation of who Jesus is. And, you know... If you find yourself in that place, or you find yourself wondering if that's what you've been doing, you're going to find yourself in good company as we look at the Gospels. Because Jesus meets people constantly that try to squeeze him into a box or to make him fit their agenda. And he refuses time and time again. Sometimes he refuses by walking away. There's a scene where the, you know, there's a crowd that's very impressed with him, and they want to make him king by force, and he just sort of slips out of their midst somehow. It's not really explained. Sometimes, sometimes he says really what seem to be kind of crazy, disruptive things. There's a scene where one woman comes to him because her daughter is very sick, and she wants him to heal her daughter, and he says to this woman, well, he basically calls her a dog. He calls her a dog. I don't know if you've had your quiet time in that section of Scripture in a while. You know, for people that like the idea that Jesus comes to bring peace, well, you can find verses that talk about that. But for people that, that don't like that idea, you can find verses where Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword and to bring division. Which Jesus will you have? Is it really all the same person? And does it make sense? Is there some way to come to understand who Jesus is that makes sense of all that weird stuff? Or should we just edit it out and be comfortable with a Jesus that fits our understanding and our comfort level? We don't want to do that. 
We don't want to do that. We're going to talk tonight just a little bit about how do you know who Jesus is? And really the two barriers to knowing who Jesus is. And there are two huge barriers. It's not as easy as it may sound to understand who Jesus is and to come to actually know him. There are huge barriers. Um, I guess the first barrier we're going to talk about is the barrier of rejecting the Gospels as reliable sources of information about Jesus. And you might say, if, if you've been around Christian churches, you know, this would be the barrier that affects those liberals that don't believe the Bible. Okay? That's one barrier. And it is a barrier, and we're going to talk about it, and why I don't think that it works very well, and why it will leave you in a place where you'll never know who Jesus is. You will end up creating a Jesus in your own image. But on the other hand, good Bible-believing evangelical Christians all the time, all the time, read the scriptures to affirm what they already believe rather than to be challenged by a Jesus who will not exist just to make their life more comfortable. And so while it's easy for evangelical Christians to say, well, we're not like those liberals, we believe the Bible. We're not, we're not creating Jesus in our own image. Well, I'm sorry to say, but yeah, you are. Everybody does it. Blaise Pascal, great um, thinker, um, philosopher, in, uh, scientist, all kinds of things, mathematician, said one time back in the 17th century, he said that, man, that God created mankind in his image and man returned the compliment. Everybody does it. So how are we going to overcome this? Well, let's, let's start by looking at a passage of Scripture. I put, if you have the green um, announcement sheet, turn it over and you'll have the, the sections of Scripture that we're going to look at tonight. We're going to start with Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at uh, John chapter 1 as well in, in just a little bit. Luke chapter 1. This is really interesting. What I want you to see from this is the Gospel writers very deliberately are writing history, truth, that they've carefully investigated. And the starting point has got to be taking our only primary source documents at face value, unless we have good reason otherwise. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into this. But let's start with what Dr. Luke says in chapter 1 of his gospel. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He means among the Christians. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I don't know if you know this or not, but Luke is not an apostle himself. He's a companion of Paul, who is an apostle, and he's saying that when I wrote my gospel, I didn't rely on my own eyewitness testimony, like two of the other gospel writers did. I relied on carefully investigating and interviewing all the witnesses I could find. Verse 3, therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the Gospel writer Luke says, I'm writing this down, I've investigated it, and I want you to have an orderly account of what happened. He's, he's very concerned. He's, he's not just telling you a nice story to get you to behave. He's saying something happened. Something happened, and I want to tell you about it. Similarly, um, John, in his gospel, also tells about that. 
uh, what happens. Put that aside for a second. We're going to look at this in a minute. Now, like I said, I mean, when you start to read the stories about the kinds of stuff that Jesus does, it's really, it's really fascinating. He does all kinds of, I, I am sure if we kind of made a list of weird stuff that Jesus did, I could preach on this stuff for two years, three years. Matter of fact, the Apostle John at the end of his gospel says, if you wrote down all the things that Jesus said or did, the, all the books in the world could not contain them. All right? There's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. All the gospel accounts are selective history. They take certain elements and leave out a whole lot of other stuff. And, and, you know, when you just begin to look at him, you're just struck by, wow, you know, this is the guy I want to emulate? Somebody who this woman comes up to him and he calls her a dog? And then, you know, the story gets even weirder because she says, you're right, I am, but bless me anyway. And he says, I've never seen greater faith in all of Israel. We're going to talk about that passage for sure because it's one of my, it's one of my favorite passages because it's just so weird. But it's so profound. And when you begin to understand who he is and what he's doing and what he's come to do, you go, oh, that, this, this begins to make some sense. There's a point early on, actually the first miracle that he does, the situation is very strange. It's the wedding of Cana in his hometown, near his hometown. And his mom comes to him privately and says, look, they're about to run out of wine. It's going to be a terrible embarrassment. Will you do something? And do you remember what he says? Well, the NIV translates it, dear woman, why do you bother me? But the dear is actually not in the Greek. That's the NIV's attempt to soften down what he says. He says, woman, why are you bothering me? I thought Jesus was respectful to his mom. But he says, woman, why are you bothering me? Another situation. His best friend, one of his best friends, after Jesus tells him about how he's going to have to go to Jerusalem to die, his best friend says, no, that'll never happen to you. You remember this? Peter says this to him. And what does he say to him? What does he say to his best friend? Get behind me, Satan. Is this Jesus, meek and mild? Is this the little baby, no crying does he make? I hope you didn't sing away in a manger. It's a, it's a really dreadful, dreadful hymn. There are bad hymns, you know. A lot of them come from the Victorian era where they just sentimentalize the Gospels. But we have these ideas, whether it's silly pictures of Jesus, like Patty Griffin says, with his, you know, honey nut, is that what he says? Honey brown hair and his big blue eyes. Yeah. I mean, goodness. Who is the real Jesus? There's so many distortions. And they're not just out there. They're in here. So we need the scriptures. We need the scriptures. The gospel writers, here's what's great. What I'm so thankful for is the gospel writers do not shy away from picturing and portraying for us Jesus as he really is, as disturbing as he really is. Look here at John chapter 1. Now, this may not disturb you because Probably, you know, I, I don't assume that everybody here is a Christian by any means. I, ne I, I should never do that at RUF because I know people that come from all different places, and that's, we're glad to have you here checking out what Christianity is about. We're trying to figure it out in a lot of ways ourselves. But, you know, John chapter 1, most people that have been raised in America have heard these kind of ideas enough that it doesn't bother you the way it bothered people in the first century. But this is really a scandalous stuff that John is saying here. When he says, in the beginning, I won't read it again because we read it for the call to worship. When he says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, does that reflect something that you've heard before? It does. It reflects Genesis chapter 1. In the, in the beginning. Very deliberately, John is connecting the story he's telling and saying this story is a con has a context. It's the story that began with Genesis 1. In the beginning. Same exact words. 
In the beginning was the Word. You remember in the creation account, it's the Word. God speaks, and reality comes into being. And now, and now, John is saying that this Word of God, who is high and holy, has taken on flesh. And Jewish people that hear that and heard that in the first century freaked. You can't say that. The holy, pure word of God that created all of reality takes on human flesh. Beyond that, dies as a common criminal on a cross, even though that same word said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a cross. You know, if, if, if John wanted to reach Jews, he should have toned that down a little bit. But he doesn't. But it's equally offensive to Greeks. You know, you, you may study Greek mythology and whatnot. The common people didn't put much stock in Greek mythology in the first century. Most people sort of paid lip service to that, but they were really more influenced by Aristotle and Plato and these ideas. And those guys talked about the idea of the word, and they had very particular ideas about flesh. Physical bodies were bad in the Greek philosophical understanding. Physicalness was bad. It was something that you had to be set free from, and hopefully one day your spirit would be set free from your body, which was a prison. And again, John says that the Word became flesh, and that's a good thing. And that freaks out all the people influenced by Greek thought, but John doesn't care. He says, this is what happened. This is reality. I was there. I saw it. In his first letter, in 1 John, he says, you know, the stuff that we're talking about, it's not, it's not cleverly invented. We, we touched this stuff. We, we touched him with our own hands. This stuff really happened. But the first barrier is, is rejecting that the Gospels really can tell us about Jesus. Now, there's all kinds of, of reasons why this is, but the interesting thing is, about 75 years ago, a lot of scholars had come to the point where they said, you know, we really can't know much about who Jesus is at all. That what we have in the Gospels, really, we have a record of the faith of the early church, where, you know, this guy Jesus, who, you know, did some cool stuff and was a nice guy and, you know, I guess was put to death by the Romans. It seems pretty clear because we have, you know, corroboration from Jewish and Roman historical sources. He was crucified. Anyway... You know, eventually, as they, as they got a little past that event, they began to think that maybe he had been divine. We're not quite sure how. But eventually, given enough time, a couple centuries, you know, then you know, they, these scholars would talk about the Easter faith of the disciples, which is different from the historical Christ. You know, you've got the historical Jesus, and then you've got the Christ of faith. And so what we have in the New Testament is not really a record of what actually happened as much as it is a record of what the early church thought and believed. We're not quite sure how they came to believe it, but that's what we have. And so, <coughs> excuse me, these, these scholars would say, you can't really actually know who Jesus was and what he's like. Now, the, the interesting thing is that, that kind of way of thinking dominated scholarly circles for, a, for quite a while. But in the last 30 years, there's really been a huge resurgence of interest in coming to understand who Jesus was, primarily by trying to understand what first century Judaism was like. So there's been a lot of, lot of re-interest in this. And yet, there still are some of these presuppositions that drive a lot of scholars, a lot of people working in this area, where they just sort of have this hang-up about taking the Gospels at face value. And, and they'll, they'll, 
I, you know, I, I put a few things. I'm not going to go through this whole little list. You can look at some of this. Some of this stuff is like, I don't care. You should all care because I'm telling you, if you don't think that the Gospels give us an accurate picture of who Jesus is, then the question is, how are you going to know what one of the most important people in the history of the world is like? And as you're thinking about what he's like, what you have to make sense of is how he emerges from a context of Judaism. Jesus doesn't just come out of the blue, out of nowhere. He comes out of a particular story. He comes, he says, as the climax of that story. And after he leaves the scene, everything is different. And people, people who would never, ever, Jewish monotheistic men who would never, ever think of worshiping a human being are running around saying this Jesus who you crucified has been raised from the dead and is Lord and God over all. How did that happen? Now here's the thing. If you throw out the Gospels completely, we still know from Jewish sources and from Roman sources that there was a man named Jesus who lived at this time in Palestine who was put to death by crucifixion by the Romans, and very soon after that there was a group of people running around worshiping him as God. You don't need any Christian books at all for that. And, and, and anybody that would deny that is just not an educated person. Okay? The, the, the question is, how can you account for that? How can you account for that? How can you account for... You know, these Jewish monotheistic men, and we know a lot about, you know, what they believed. How did they come to embrace this idea? So much so that they went to their deaths for it. And you can say, well, they made it up and it was an elaborate conspiracy. And they went to their deaths for that, for this conspiracy? It, it seems kind of preposterous, preposterous to me. Um, but you have to say, you have to begin to understand, how can we make sense of it? And I, what I would submit to you is the gospel accounts of who Jesus is, what he does, and what he says, is really the only explanation that makes any sense of what we know from sources even outside of Christianity. And we're going to look at some of that stuff um, as we go through this semester. Um, you know, there's so many, so many barriers, I guess, to understanding and to embracing the Gospels. And I'm not even asking you tonight to, to say that the Gospels are without error in anything that they teach, though I believe that, and I think there are good reasons for believing that. If you want to talk about that over coffee, I'd love to do it sometime. But I'm saying just start with them, thinking of them as basically reliable, because there really aren't that many good reasons to doubt that. And you have to deal with what they say and what they portray in Jesus. You know, a lot of times modern people have this sense of arrogance where we just believe that we're smarter than people that lived in previous eras. And we think that, you know, these, these, modern, these uh, ancient people in the first century, they must have been so gullible. They must have been so gullible. But, you know, they didn't believe that virgins gave birth. That's why when the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to be with child, she says, how can this be? She doesn't say, oh, wonderful, great, happy, happy to know. She says, no, how can that be? That doesn't make any sense. Right? Doesn't make any sense. I haven't been with a man. I know how these things work. Right? She's not gullible. They didn't, they didn't believe that people walked on water. Well, that's why they regarded it as a pretty amazing thing when it happened. They didn't think that people raised from the dead. Right? They weren't idiots. So, so part, one of the barriers we have is thinking as modern people, we've got it all figured out. 
and uh, you know, the, the, and, and part of that is, you know, we're always wanting to know the kind of the latest cool little theory. The latest cool little theory, I guess, though it's not at all new, it seems new, uh, is sort of the, the, these ideas that are put across by things like the Da Vinci Code, Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. You guys are familiar at all with this? The idea that there was this vast conspiracy that covered up the real story. Um, N.T. Wright is a great uh, New Testament scholar who, um, I put this little quote down for you because I think it's, it's very helpful. He says this, the Gnostic conspiracy theory. The Gnostics are the people who basically tried to bring that Greek thought that the body is evil, and they tried to bring that into Christianity and say Jesus wasn't really, didn't have a real body, he wasn't a real man because God could never be a real man. And they had different ideas, like maybe he had this pure, more enlightened soul that was trapped in a body. And so the Gospel of Judas, for instance, goes so far as to say that you know, Jesus tells Judas to hand him over so that he can be killed, so that he can be set free from his body, which is a prison. Right? Judas didn't write it, I hope you understand. But it, it, it was this idea in the second and third centuries that begins to develop, and people begin to write things like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas, saying that, hey, you know, the story that you've heard is not the real story. It's not the right story. Something else happened. And, and, here's, and this is what N.T. Wright, and I think this is really, really helpful, he says, the Gnostic conspiracy theory says that orthodoxy hushed up the really exciting thing and promoted this boring, sterile thing with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, of course, there's a great lie underneath that. In the second and third centuries, the people being thrown to the lions and burned at the stake and sawed in two were not the ones reading Thomas and Judas and the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary. They were the ones reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because the empire, the Roman Empire, was perfectly happy with Gnosticism. Because Gnosticism, you see, said it doesn't matter what we do on this earth. We're no threat to anybody because all we want to do is die and have our soul get released. So nobody's threatened by us. Gnosticism poses no threat to the empire, whereas Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do because Jesus comes and proclaims a kingdom. It's the church's shame that in the last 200 years, the church has muzzled Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and turned them into instruments of a controlling, sterile orthodoxy. But the texts themselves are explosive. And my hope and prayer is that we could get a hold of those texts. And one of the reasons that they've been muzzled is because we don't want a Jesus who disrupts us. We want a Jesus who will fulfill our hopes and dreams rather than change our hopes and dreams. Uh, you know, there, there really are a lot of good, reliable reasons for trusting the reliability of the gospel. If I put them down here, I'm not going to go through them all. I know all, almost all you guys take New Testament here, and I know that, you know, depending on which professors you have, you're exposed to lots of different ideas. I love to talk about that stuff all the time. I think that, you know, the real goal of a liberal education should be that you hear the best arguments on both sides. I... I've been here for 12 years, and I'm not sure that that always happens with students. Can I say that fairly? Um, I think a lot of times the assumption is that you all come from conservative backgrounds and understand the good reasons why the church has believed the things it's believed, and now that you're here at college, it's a good time to shake you up and expose you to some new ideas. I think that that's true. I just think that probably most of you have never really known why, you know, what are the reasons against some of the new ideas, because there are really good discussions that should be had about these kinds of things. If I did that tonight, it would be kind of boring and you'd all be falling asleep. So I'm not going to do that. But I'll just say, you know, one last thing about sort of how to critique or think about the critics. There's so much circular reasoning that goes on. For instance, in Second Peter chapter 3, you know, what the church 
has always regarded as Peter's second letter that we have, 2 Peter chapter 3, he calls Paul's writings scripture. It's interesting. He calls Paul's writings scripture. A lot of scholars, though, will say, well, 2 Peter can't be authentic. It can't be, you know, people didn't believe that the New Testament writings were scripture until hundreds of years later, when after they'd sat around for a while, they began to venerate these texts. And when they didn't, you know, nobody would have thought they were scripture originally, but now they've been around so long and have gained kind of a sense of antiquity and reverence that now that we think of them as scripture. The problem with that, of course, is 2 Peter 3.16 says that Paul's writings, even when Paul was still alive, still writing, he calls them scripture. So the scholars say, well, then 2 Peter has to be dated late to the period at which the church began to call Paul's writings scripture. Well, how do you know when Paul, the church began to call Paul's writing scripture if you reject the only primary source documents that you have? You see what happens is people come up with these sort of historical kind of reconstructions, generally based on sort of this evolutionary idea that these poor misguided people eventually evolved into a more and more sophisticated idea of God, and therefore you can kind of plot where they could have been at a certain period of time, and if you find them believing this, well, they certainly couldn't have believed this back then, they didn't evolve to that understanding until they were here. So this document has to be dated here. It's all this kind of circular reasoning based upon presuppositions that don't really come out of the actual historical documents and evidence that we have. Again, again, the scriptures are, the, are the, really the only thing that makes sense of what we know, even from non-scriptural sources, and explain the way Jesus comes out of the context of Judaism and changes everything. And I hope to show that as we go through this semester. Now I say there are good reasons. I put a bunch of them down here. You may be interested in that kind of thing. But I want to jump to the, the, to the kind of this other thing that I think hits to home with a lot of y'all. Because I know most people at Belmont, you've at least been exposed to a church in that kind of setting, Christian setting. And, and I want us to look at this. A professor of mine, Dr. Yarbrough, used to say this. For us, for us, meaning people that would call themselves evangelical Christians, the task of Bible interpretation is to see what's really there, rather than using the Bible to buttress our own views. And that is not as easy as it may sound. We often let our preconceived notions govern how we see Jesus. And I don't care whether you're politically liberal or politically conservative, theologically liberal, theologically conservative, we both do it in our own way. Liberals tend to focus more on mercy, and grace. And God would never judge anybody for anything. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a famous quote about how the liberal understanding of the gospel is that God without wrath, you know, sent Jesus, you know, in, into the world to, you know, to, to, I can't remember. I should have written it down because I'll, I'll bring it next week. But it's this idea that basically we just don't like this kind of, oh, this idea that there'd be blood and there'd be a vengeful, wrathful God and all that stuff. Ugh, we don't like that. Um, we, like the, we like the Jesus, you know, who says, you know, to the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, you know, and we shouldn't judge anybody. And that's the kind of stuff we like, okay? And then there's the conservatives that love to bash people over the head with what's true, right? And generally without much love or grace in their mannerisms. You know, these are the people that want to say, yeah, God is the God of truth. And so help me God, I'm going to get you to believe it. <laughs> But see, you know, John chapter 1 says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And when you look in the Gospels and you see his encounters with people, sometimes you're, I don't know, 
sometimes you're just amazed, amazed that he is mean to people. I don't know, I'll give you, you know, the example you probably know in John chapter 3, this guy named Nicodemus comes, I don't know if, if you haven't heard the story, I know you've heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Right, that comes out of a story in John chapter 3 where this guy comes to him in the middle of the night named Nicodemus, and he says, he wants to just kind of have a nice little theological discussion with Jesus, and Jesus turns it into a fight. We will look at that passage, and without a doubt, Jesus turns this nice little discussion into a fight. He provokes the guy. He says, you can't enter into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. The guy didn't ask him about being born again. Jesus just sort of throws down the gauntlet. He does that kind of stuff all the time. Then there's other people that it doesn't really bother us, because we tend to like the idea of grace, but I'm telling you, the people that complained about Jesus when he was alive on this earth were people that thought he was too gracious. What are you doing eating with those sinners and those tax collectors? What are you doing? Don't you know that that woman, what her background is, and you're letting her touch you and wash your hair or wash your feet with her tears? If you really knew who that was touching you, come on. Right? The people that were really bothered by Jesus were the religious conservatives because they thought he was soft on truth. And it's still kind of that way. There's still, you know, we still like, like to find a Jesus who fits our temperament. If we're non-confrontational people, then we really like the Jesus who's all full of grace. If we like to mix it up with people, then, yeah, give me those stories where, you know, he's taking on the Pharisees and calling them whitewashed tombs. Yeah, that's my Jesus. But you see, Jesus is all of those things. And often, he's, he's he, he, you know, if you're the one who likes grace and mercy, you probably need to, you probably need him to speak truth to you. And if you're the one who really likes truth, you need to hear his grace and his mercy. And hopefully that'll come out. Um, you have to beware of just letting your preconceived ideas of Jesus. People tell me all the time, my Jesus is not like that. Anybody ever told you that? My Jesus is not like that. And you, you just want to ring him by the neck sometimes and say, well, Jesus either is or he isn't. And how do you know? And do you really believe that Jesus is who you imagine him to be? Upon what basis do you say my Jesus is not like that? The scriptures? That's what we want to be challenged. All of us be challenged about this semester. Um, what's the way forward? A couple points in conclusion here tonight. Why does this stuff matter? Why does it matter whether we believe what the gospels say about Jesus? And I'll tell you. Because your view of who Jesus is has everything to do with your understanding of what Jesus came to do and what he saved us from. We talk in the Christian church about Jesus being a savior, and yet there are a lot of different conceptions about what that means, and it has everything to do with who you think Jesus is. Is Jesus somebody who comes to rescue people from their sins, or is he somebody who comes to sort of, you know, help us, we've got a little off the path, but we need a little redirection? Is he come to teach us, you know, wonderful moral truths so that we can know how to live our lives better? What, what has he come to do? The answer to that question always will be rooted in, who is he? Who is Jesus? I, like I said, there's no good reasons, really, to reject the Gospels as sources, reliable sources for knowing who Jesus claimed to be. And again, just go, go home with this point. Whatever you think about who Jesus was has to make sense of the context he came from and the change that he left. He's here. 
There was something before and something after. And who he is has to make sense of both of those things. And there are a lot of people that really want to make Jesus out to be fitted into the Jewish context, but can't, don't, are left with a Jesus who doesn't explain why things changed. Or people that say, well, all this stuff changed, but they don't see him as connected to Judaism at all. And they just see Jesus as coming in to sort of help people have a personal relationship with him. This is you know, more the evangelical idea. We don't understand that Jesus has a context in a story that God has been telling for a long time. Jesus doesn't come just to give us little personal entrance into heaven and to work on our internal little souls. He comes to do a whole lot more than that. And yet, if you don't understand the Jewish context and the Jewish understanding and hope for the world, you really may miss a lot of what Jesus came to do. And you'll have this narrow little view of Jesus, this narrow little view of his kingdom. So it's important that we get both of those parts, the before and the after, as we seek to understand who Jesus is. Fourth point, Christianity, I guess it's the third, but I got rid of three, didn't I? Did I do it on your paper too? Yeah. Christianity contends that Jesus knew who he was. Now this is important. The way the Gospels reveal Jesus, he knows who he is and what he came to do from the very beginning. It's not something that surprised him. He didn't get tricked into going to the cross. It wasn't a tragic slip-up on his part. And that's going to be important because there's no way to understand a lot of what goes on in the Gospels unless you understand the Bible really presents him as a supernatural person. And a person, you know, if he's a supernatural person, wouldn't you expect him to be a little mysterious? He is. Of course he is. And finally this. I'll, I'll close you with this. Presuppositions whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, whether you're not sure where you are and you hate those terms, they threaten to blind all of us to seeing who Jesus really is. But take heart. Take heart. Christianity proclaims that the Word of God is a living Word that is living and active and can open our eyes to see who Jesus really is. And so my encouragement is pray for yourself Pray for each other. Pray for me that as we go through this study, that we wouldn't just sit above the text and say, oh, isn't that very interesting, but that we would come under the text, that rather than us always asking questions of the Bible, that actually God through the Bible would begin to ask some questions of us and that we would feel the need to answer them, as uncomfortable as they may be. Pray that we would be given the courage to say, to even think, even this week, Jesus, if I were to describe you in 10 or 15 words, what words would they be? And would, full of vengeance, have made the list? Would it? Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible, you know. There's a lot of things that Jesus does that would surprise us. I think that would be really interesting. I'd love to see you guys do that. 15 words. You can do five pretty easy, but 15 will start to actually get you somewhere into figuring out, what do I really think about who Jesus is? What do I think he's like? What, how do I think he regards me? And then we're going to go through the scriptures together. And maybe, uh, maybe we'll, we'll have our opinions changed. I hope so. Because I'll tell you, you know, people ask sometimes, what does it mean, what is... RUF. It stands for Reformed University Fellowship. You know what Reformed means? It comes from a motto at the time of the Reformation, and it basically means this. 
we understand that human beings, including us, starting with us, have a need to be constantly reformed by the scriptures. To say we're reformed means that we believe that we are screwed up and that we don't just go to get a quick fix and then we're all better. We have a continual need, whether you've walked with Jesus for a long time, whether you're just checking this stuff out, we have a continual need to be reformed by God and his word. And so we should come to this humbly. And for that, we need the Spirit's help because nobody does that by nature. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us scripture. You've given us word, truth. We pray, Lord, that we could understand it, receive it, obey it. We pray, Lord, that you would convince us of what is real and what is true, that you would lead us into the way of all truth. We pray that you would help us, help us to to put aside our presuppositions, that your living word would come and blow up the little boxes that we try to put you in, Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would emerge from this semester not just more enlightened, more intellectually um, sophisticated, but Lord, we would emerge as people more deeply in love with you because we have a deeper, richer understanding of who you are, what you've come to do, and our place in that work. Help us, Lord, to know what the kingdom is all about and how we're to be part of it. We pray this in Jesus' name.